This episode is brought to you by Hippo Manager. Hippo Manager is a cloud-based veterinary practice management software that saves you time and integrates with your favorite tools. Visit hippomanager.com to sign up for a demo and get a free trial. But as a business owner in a, a rural area, I'm going, dang it, you know, I need another veterinarian. And right now, they're not easy to come by. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Dr. Carol Hillhouse and Joe Hillhouse own two mixed animal practices, Carson County Veterinary Clinic in Panhandle and High Plains Animal Hospital in Borger, Texas. When we spoke at the end of February, they didn't have any associate veterinarians. Their colleagues left for different reasons. Two got married, one became a mother, and another was diagnosed with breast cancer. But as of May, they hired three associates, all of whom recently graduated from veterinary school. But it took a while. Recruiting rural veterinarians is tough because there just aren't that many. There are several reasons why, which you'll hear about in this episode. They also share ideas about what can be done. One strategy that is already in the works is the Serving Every Texan Every Day initiative. This plan consists of a four-way partnership of Texas A&M system universities. The network enlarges the pipeline of rural students to enter veterinary school and college station. Those students are more likely to return to their roots. That was the case for Dr. Joe Hillhouse, who graduated in 1984. He wanted to return close to home after veterinary school. And well, Dr. Carol, her story is different. She grew up in Waco. So it was falling in love with Dr. Joe that took her out to the country. But it wasn't an easy decision. And at first, I was pretty hesitant. I was worried because it's just not, it wasn't familiar to me to be able to look outside and see for miles. Um, but I grew to love it. And it's a, the rural area turned out to be a great idea or situation for our family. Um, it's, it was a lot easier, I think, to raise our children in a rural area where everyone knows everyone. And we were able to be big participants in our community. Um, the kids can walk to school and walk to the swimming pool and everyone along the way can watch them. Um, if they got into trouble, we knew about it before they got home. <laughs> it's a community. You can't be anonymous. Um, I don't think it's the rural community is not a good place to hide from anybody. And that's not what we want. The veterinarians are well respected. They're a prominent member of a rural community. In fact, many times they're the most educated person in the community um, when you think about it and therefore play a pretty big role. And overall, you need to participate in the community as a veterinarian. And I mean, by volunteering, um, doing um, things to help the community, run for the school board or or like I do, be a Girl Scout leader, um, be be um, 
a part of it and these people are your people and and you don't just go home and watch tv and then go to work it's it's more of a lifestyle than it is a job being a veterinarian in a rural community and so it's not for everyone it really isn't but the people that like that you know like like that immersion into that i think thrive they they like it were were you worried that you wouldn't like it Mm, no, not really. I, I, I guess I didn't know enough to worry about it. Wherever you're planted, you should bloom. You know, you should do, you should do your best wherever you are. And I was planted in Panhandle, Texas, and I tried my best to do a good job, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just curious about how you guys chose to move to the Panhandle versus Dr. Carroll, you could have been like, Joe, no, I want to live in Waco. (laughs) How did you guys make that decision? Well, you know, Joe was more interested in in large animal veterinary medicine, so I knew that we would have to be some, we couldn't live in a city. Okay. You have to have both jobs for both spouses. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, it really wasn't ever an option. I don't know. Do you have more to say about that? I have a little story but but, uh, (laughs) well back before there was dirt uh, (laughs) we we graduated nearly 36 years ago and to say that veterinary medicine was different is is putting it mildly carol was pretty heavily recruited by one of the the very first private practice internships in the state of Texas. And Carol was my first love, but cows were my second. <laughs> so she kind of gave gave that opportunity up so that I could go work on cows. And I carry some guilt over that. But So I, I've spent a lot of my time trying to create a practice that my wife could excel at. Mm. And so... She has always pushed the boundaries of standards of care and abilities and knowledge for our clients and our patients. I spent a lot of times on the economic side of that thing, how can we make this happen? I think fundamentally we have. She is able to practice at the level that she wanted to, but still, you know, serving the community, we, we practice for also for some people who really can't afford veterinary medicine. Because we're in a rural community, it's our responsibility to do that. What, what, so, do, you do, what do you do if someone can't afford it? I give them the best options we can. We can't hide from those people. You know, yeah. We, <laughs> you know, we know them. We, we have their children in Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. They consider us a friend. But getting comfortable with the economic realities of of life is just something that you have to do. I think it's a point of conflict for especially young veterinarians, and it's a struggle for them sometimes. And it is a struggle for for all of us every day, probably. We, We would like to do the absolute best we can for our patients, but lo and behold, there's a client attached to them. Right. I'm curious about how you two started out with owning your own practice, because 
you know, I know it's not easy to just start off. Can you tell me about that experience? You want to do this one get older. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. We're different then, and when we graduated from veterinary school, the debt wasn't as big of an issue. When we first got out of school, we practiced in in Nacogdoches, Texas, and we were just, at, I was at an all-small animal clinic and Joe was at an all-large animal clinic, but we knew eventually that we wanted to go back home and got, got the opportunity to do that, and we wanted to own our own practice, and so two years out of school, we did. We moved back to Joe's home, and um, we there was not a veterinarian in the in Panhandle, the town that we wanted to be in. So we built a practice from the ground up. I, I think there was a lot more need to be with a feeling of independence. Uh, I want to be my own boss. Uh, I don't want to give in to the norms or anything. We're fundamentally happy. Uh, we just weren't making a ton of money. Today's climate, we're driving so many things. There's not very many new grads that I would encourage to go open your practice. It takes a long time to to develop a business, and you struggle and sacrifice and to try to make it work. And and it's just hard. And get a little better at it every day, and wake up 36 years later and say, I'm way busier than I want to be. There's really a lot, and and you can take all of the the issues that veterinary medicine in general uh, is facing, and then issues like consolidation of agriculture and student debt and changing demographics. And and then I think one of the somewhat unique things that rural practices face is we may be a little bit behind in in our practice models compared to our urban brethren and, and we're we're still more under a community service type model versus what might be termed a more economic model okay so you guys just listed at least three obstacles um let's go into the one about consolidation of agriculture can you tell me what that means food animal medicine has changed dramatically and uh, the way that we deliver services to food animal clients has changed pretty dramatically and uh, in 1986 we had uh, 115 million head of cattle and we produced 24 billion pounds of of red meat Uh, coming into 2020 we we have 95 million head of cattle producing 28 billion pounds of meat. And so it's about 17% fewer cattle uh, with, with 17% more production. And that, that's multiplied. And, and the veterinary profession should be proud of itself because it had a big, big portion to play in that, that scenario. But we have made uh, agriculture much more efficient. One of the efficiencies has been fundamentally the, the provision, how we provide veterinary services. We do more with less. That is a, a pretty fundamental issue that, that we see facing feed animal practitioners in the country. 
And why does that trend deter veterinarians from working in rural areas? Realistically, there's just less work. We tend to see the number of food animal practitioners declining because fundamentally we're, we're doing our job, but we're, we're doing it with less man hours. And is this affecting you guys at all? Uh, sure. Uh, we've seen our practice change, uh, especially locally. Our, our model tends to be a local service area. When I moved to Panhandle and we started our practice in there in 1986, there were probably close to 80,000 head of stalker cattle in, in Carson County. And uh, there's three to 5,000 uh, now. Mm. So those, those numbers have changed dramatically. And part of the reason for that is uh, we, we just have more efficient cattle uh, to deal with. We're, 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 we're growing them faster, better. It, it just takes less of us to, to do that. And then, Dr. Carroll, you talked about demographics changing. Well, the changing demographics, they're affecting all veterinarians, but just from a rural standpoint, yes, there's just a, there's a lot, a lot going on there. As you know, our profession is increasingly female, um, probably graduating close to 80% female. It affects rural practice maybe more than urban practice. Um, because of what Joe mentioned, we have in, in the rural areas more of a community service type of practice, which means that we see everyone that comes in from people who only want a rabies vaccine to people that want higher level, much higher level care. And it's a, it's a big responsibility for one practice to provide all of those different levels. Um, but when there's only one practice in town, or you know, or maybe even a few, it's something that we're faced with. And with females um, who are almost always the primary caregiver for children and also of their home, um, that is more difficult for them to to work in a practice that has less flexible hours and also after hours care. Um, we don't have the luxury of having emergency clinics in town and so we are challenged with taking care of our clients and patients after hours and that puts a strain on um, certainly your work-life work balance. It's probably the main challenge is that it's hard to find people that are willing to do the after hours work. I think the females put a put a higher they they rank things differently than men do as far as what they want out of a job and out of out of life and um, the social aspects of a place where they live are also pretty important to women. I think they they want a support network. They want the um, family or friends or you know people that they know basically nearby. Rural life can be pretty isolated. They want the stability and security of city life. You know, it's different. I think it's harder. There's um, certainly 
people that are willing to do it and and make it work but it it is more difficult i think as a woman um you're talking about all these challenges of how you know women tend to be more of the people who take care of the children like not not always but most of the time how how have you dealt with that in your personal life well um joe and i have two boys and they grew up at the clinic pretty much we were able being practice owners we were able to do that we didn't see it as a obstacle really there were challenges with it but our kids came with us and worked with us and played in the other room and that sort of thing so we i mean it was it was well accepted by our clients and it was more of a positive parenting thing that our kids got to come with us and were kind of celebrities at the clinic, basically, you know, so yeah. it, it worked well for us. Um, it's a little bit harder for an associate to do that. You know, being a practice owner, we can make the rules and that's what we decided we were going to do with our kids. But when you, when you don't make the rules, you don't always get that luxury. Yeah. Do you think any, um, rural veterinary clinics who are trying to recruit female large or mixed animal veterinarians are trying to do anything to make it easier for women to practice while taking care of their children like i think i've heard of a veterinary clinic having child care on site yeah they do and certainly that is something to have there are a lot of rules and regulations associated with daycares that can be obstacles as far as the law goes and trying to run a daycare, mm -hmm. you know, so that's something that maybe a lot of people don't think about when that sounds like a good idea, but apparently it is quite yeah. strict, um, <laughs> you know, as far as what they can do and what they can't do and that sort of thing. Um, we definitely try to be as flexible as we can with ours um, but we do have to serve the community so you can't just be gone you know um, but with multiple veterinarians which is what we try to do we share the load and someone can cover while someone else is gone um, when you're a single man it's you know tough to do that but um, even with after hours we take turns or rotate being on call so that no one has to do it every night mm -hmm. So we try hard to make it as flexible as we can and, and accommodate our associates as well as um, our clients. You know, we've got we've to take care of our clients. And tell me about your practices. How many people work for you guys? Are you talking about veterinarians? Well, um, we don't have any now. <laughs> <laughs> now they have three new associates. Two of them just graduated from Midwestern University. Another is an Aggie and is finishing his residency at Iowa State and will join this month. Prior to hiring them in May, this is what they went through. We've been through a difficult year this year. We lost a young associate to marriage. We're about to lose another young associate to marriage. Uh, lost another associate to motherhood. Currently, we're in a heck of a shape. We, we've had as many as, as six practicing veterinarians between the, the two clinics. Uh, and we had an associate out last year for a treatment of breast cancer as well. And, and so we've been 
uh, really through the ringer in about the, the, the last year and a half, trying to to reach a comfortable level with shared responsibilities and having uh, not specialties but interests that that improve the the quality of the service offerings that we have. Uh, some people do things and are interested in in certain areas of veterinary medicine that that have expanded the the economic pie, uh, and that we're able to serve more people because of it. And that is a, a sort of a premise to uh, the community service practice is you have a, a finite uh, setting of of clientele. The more services that you can find to sell to that set number of clientele, the, the more productive you become. Yeah. It, it's so interesting the way you talk about that you've lost the associates to motherhood and to marriage. It's, you make it sound so sad when <laughs> they're like exciting <laughs> moments in people's lives. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it, is, it is very mixed for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, uh, an associate of seven years and had a baby last August and she had an opportunity to move home and be close to grandparents and I'm just tickled to death for, for her and you know her child but as a business owner in a, a rural area I'm going dang it you know I need another veterinarian and right now they're not easy to come by. Yeah so how do you guys find a veterinarian to work for you? <laughs> well, word of mouth is the most the the thing that's the best. Um, we've placed advertisements, but really, truthfully, haven't gotten much from them. It's a tedious process, and it's an expensive process, and it doesn't yield well to just advertise. Uh, networking has probably produced more for us than anything else. TVMA is really, really important for us because of the networking opportunity. And but, you can uh, use this podcast as a way to recruit. You can. <laughs> this can you're welcome. <laughs> Send about, me a resume. <laughs> how, how, okay, how about you give us your pitch? What, how would you, um, if you were to tell someone to come work for you, what would you say? What are all the benefits? You, you work for somebody that's really handsome. And somebody else that's really smart. So <laughs> we believe we have a lot of things going for us. One is the opportunity to have a very diverse clientele and and patient base. Uh, you know, you may work on a pig this minute and a dog and a cat, and then back to a horse and then you know go out on the ranch call and 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 I really enjoy the diversity of patients and 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 clients that I get to see. I like to believe and and think we really do have the capability of practicing good medicine. Carol is boarded in, in canine and feline through the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners and is an extremely knowledgeable 
clinical veterinarian. We can provide great mentorship in all the species. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about this episode's sponsor, Hippo Manager. Hippo Manager is a cloud-based veterinary practice management software that serves as the central nervous system for your clinic. It manages and integrates your data with your labs, pharmacy, client communication tools, and more. Hippo is easy to use and gives you flexibility so you can practice medicine your way. Perfect for mobile veterinarians, specialty practices, small animal clinics, corporate practices, and more. It's available at a one simple price, $119 per month per veterinarian. Visit hippomanager.com to sign up for a demo and free trial. Come see for yourself. So now I want to talk about student decks. I know that's another barrier for recent graduates to come work out in rural areas. Carol, could you talk a little bit about that? It's a problem that I think is very well known. We already know about it. It's that the veterinary schools um, are very expensive, which means that most all of the students are in a large amount of debt when they when they graduate. And in order to service that debt, they need a high enough salary to do that. And even on down the line, if they're in a lot of debt, they're less likely to want to purchase a practice, which leaves all the retiring veterinarians unable to sell their practice. It's an ongoing thing. I mean, it starts when they graduate or even before, but it affects the entire group of veterinarians. You know, they're just much less likely to to want to buy into a practice. But I, I was reading in an article that that's buying into a practice is actually one of the better ways to acquire wealth than to be an associate. But I know that there can be a lot of hassle with owning a practice. Well, yeah, but, you know, that to be, it is, it is the best way to, to be your own boss and to run it the way you want to, but also to be, you know, to get more money, but they can't really buy in if they're already in a lot of debt. So it's hard for them and it's hard for the people that wish they could sell their practice. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of recent graduates, I've also read that they're more likely to practice in a rural area if they already grew up in a rural area? I'm within 75 miles of where I grew up. Uh, and so it, it was, we we selected where to come practice. You know, I, I wanted to go home. And and we think that, uh, that that's a big... Draw. Uh, uh, yeah, a big draw is, is you know, looking for, for veterinarians who originally came from here mm-hmm. um, and and yet I, the, the numbers from two years ago you know we, we only had about 36 kids from the whole of West Texas applying to veterinary school what we need to do something to put to encourage kids to go that avenue and a lot of veterinarians in rural areas I think are looking at the the, the increased responsibility and and of of owning a practice and and the in, increased responsibility of of taking care of the community 
and questioning whether we shouldn't be encouraging people to do that. I, I, I will comment a little bit about this student debt, uh, and I agree with you. I, I do believe that the quickest avenue to financial stability is still practice ownership. But again, it's another set of responsibilities that is just tough to take on. But as, as rural, rural practice is having a somewhat of an identity crisis that, that we need to be pulled into the uh, economic side of you know, a more economically driven uh, practice for sustainability. If there's no money there, it's, we come to the decision, it's not likely to happen. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that the reason I think community practice was sort of the original veterinary medicine and we're, we have evolved over the last 30 or so years towards, you know, about on the economic side. I'm curious how you feel about the building of the second veterinary school in Amarillo, because I know part of that is to address the shortage of rural veterinarians. I mean, it's in that area. <laughs> how do you that's, feel about it? That's a big can of worms, and it's a it's a talk all in itself. But I I think that maybe. It's misguided. Um, I think that just because it's opening in Amarillo doesn't mean that the people are going to stay in rural areas that graduate from there. And I think that maybe the students are being misled a little bit as far as how many rural jobs are out there. I don't know that making more veterinarians is going to increase the veterinary population in rural areas. Mm. And that's been an argument this whole time. Like Joe said, people like to go home. We can't make someone stay in a rural area that doesn't want to be there. The issues that you know rural communities face, that rural veterinarians face, are, are extremely complex. I do feel like the overriding thing to this has been when all you have is a hammer uh, everything looks like a nail mm. and I, I think we've for such a small profession as as veterinarians are and you know four and a half percent of of veterinarians are mixed animal practices methods to deal with it and we've seen you know, school after school, increase enrollment because of, you know, the rural veterinary crisis. And uh, we've increased numbers, we've increased numbers, uh, and, and it has effect in changing the outcomes for, for rural practices. And my fear is that the efforts we're, are going to be the same, uh, that that we are not going to solve the problem this way. Dr. Green's, uh, Eleanor Green's uh, movement for serving Texas, serving every Texan every day with the regional colleges selecting uh, veterinary students, uh, you know, the the four colleges have the opportunity to to place students in the veterinary school, I thought was just a brilliant idea because 
again, the most most likely uh, person to be attending a, a regional college is someone from the region, mm-hmm. and uh, and the most likely person to come back to uh, a rural veterinary practice, we believe, is going to be a person from the region. Back to the changing demographics, too, I think that the group of veterinarians now, the group of young veterinarians, is much more mobile than we were. We didn't think about moving every few years. We, we, When we started our practice, we intended to stay there forever, and we have. Um, but I think that mindset is a little different now. I think that the um, new graduates now they don't really plan to stay in one place forever, or at least the ones that we've talked to, they're not, they're not committed to that sort of longevity that we were. And I don't know that anyone is these days, but it's just, you know, that's a different demographic change back when we were talking about demographics. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And then I know another point was that there's a corporate management versus community service. I know Joe touched a little bit on community service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, how clinics are becoming acquired by corporations and how that's affecting rural practices? I, I think if you, if you look at corporate management, of course, they're, typically their primary concern is you know, profits, excess money, and they're, they're looking for the... Uh, uh, the more profitable practices and a rural practice because of you know fundamentally dealing with community service may not look as attractive to those uh, corporate buyers as the more urban practice is one of the one of the major issues for veterinary medicine has been utilizing staff to leverage the veterinarians uh, abilities and, or how much can he produce or she produced, uh, and so we we hire minions uh, to make that happen. It, it amazes me how how productive uh, some of my colleagues are able to be. For us, the the issue becomes we don't have that emergency clinic down the road, and so in the r- rural areas, we tend to seek more veterinarians. Uh, for the practice in order to have a better quality of life because we have more more people to share those community responsibilities with. Our life's better, but we don't make as much money. And so there, there's a, a split reason for that. And a lot of the, the services that we provide, especially for production animal medicine really do not lend themselves well to utilizing staff to to leverage the veterinary. There are some practices in Texas that that do utilize those uh, staff members for clients that are seeking husbandry or clinical services for the feed animals. Those are typically the smaller herd herd owners, uh, and and they've done that very effectively and and do well at it. So the, the diversity within the, of the veterinarians within the practice is kind of important to us too and, and having a, a broad-based journalist helps and having multiple broad-based journalists is really better. Based on all of the 
hurdles that we've mentioned, which are consolidation of agriculture, student debt, changing demographics, and what you were just mentioning, the um, corporate management versus community service. How can we overcome these hurdles? What, what efforts do you think rural practices need to undertake to address this situation? No, that's a big question. <laughs> it's a lot. Joe? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you start. Probably the best thing we can do is um, help veterinarians with, with business training, uh, understanding what their practice is, how to, you know how it's modeled and we'll find ways to squeeze more dollars out of the practice and into those young associates pockets basically to attract them to a rural area in the first place we're going to have to pay them more and you know financially that's tough i mean but you have to figure out a way to hopefully make it work where the more veterinarians we have, then the better quality of life everyone has. And but it does slice up the pie a little smaller. So, mm -hmm. you know, one of the ways that we've gotten around the after hours issue is to share, share, share the on-call duties with surrounding clinics. Um, and that works fairly well. You know, people still have to travel a little bit, but but that way nobody has to be on call every night and it's worked for us to do that we see a, maybe a larger number of new graduates that maybe are not prepared for the responsibilities of rural practice we're going to try to start a private practice internship for you know rural mixed animal practitioners See if we can get them comfortable with the wide variety of clinical and production issues that we see in our our practice and give them a broad enough base that or a generalist enough base that if whatever they decide after one year that they can go on and and do whatever it is they want to be, whether that be a a practice owner or as an associate in a in another practice or even into a resident, we think we can give them enough background in their first year to maybe make that worthwhile. I, I think opportunity to have a strong learning experience without being overly burdened by the need to produce income may be of value to some of our very young colleagues coming out of coming out of veterinary school. But if we can elevate them to quickly in that first year to the level of full associate veterinarian, and I, and I think we can get their confidence that that they may be able to step into their second year as a full fledged associate veterinarian. We're going down that rabbit hole right now, and and we hope that it works out for for us and then, you know, hopefully for the interns as well. And is that similar to what Dr. Dr. Carroll was mentioning about the mentorship? Is that along the same line? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we do a lot of that anyway. Um, a lot of mentorship, 
but it does it does take a lot of time, you know, to do that. But it's something that we think that new graduates are seeking. That's what they list as important to them. They want the mentorship. They maybe don't feel like they get that as much in school. You know, they're learning and and they want someone to show them the ropes. Um, guide them in the right decisions, the critical thinking and analytical skills and everything that um, goes together to make a good rural practitioner. It is a tough thing, and I think it is harder in a rural practice for all the things that we've mentioned, and they might be considering it, but they're afraid or just don't feel comfortable with with their training so far. So we're just going to take that to the next level. They plan on having a rural mixed animal practice internship beginning July of 2021. Dr. Carroll thinks it will be especially attractive to new graduates looking to gain clinical skills and confidence since many externships were canceled due to the pandemic. Do you guys talk with other rural veterinarians about what they're going through as well? All the time. Yeah, yeah. It's not just us. I just came off the board of directors for AABP a year ago, and AABP really put a lot of resources into trying to understand this topic. For the last close to ten years, I've had pretty much an ongoing dialogue about these issues. I still serve on the AABP's practice sustainability committees and our, our ability to uh, affect things is we have problems but how, how do we change things you know student debt you know that school costs too much uh, I asked the dean said why don't you lower the cost of it school she said no you know <laughs> the the profession is is not likely to do something about that and and so the reality is you know, what can we do? Uh, understanding our own business is probably the, the best effort that we can undertake. It's a, it's a tough topic, but I think that we, we need to start addressing it. We need to communicate with our colleagues and listen to everyone's ideas um, and help the whole profession. You know, it's not it's not just rural problems, but um, certainly we have our share of them. That was Dr. Carol and Joe Hillhouse discussing why there's a shortage of rural veterinarians. They mentioned the consolidation of agriculture, student loan debt, lower salaries, and female veterinarians seeking more flexible work hours. Despite these obstacles, they finally hired three new associates after months of putting the word out. While it wasn't easy, the two of them truly enjoy living out in the country and serving their community. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Mm-hmm.